Our, our new series is about notifications that matter, and I was just looking at my and I wonder if you have the same experience that there are those little red bubbles with the number inside on just about every app on my phone. It's not just missed calls and, and new text and uh, other direct messages and unread emails, but even games and you know file apps and not to mention social media, they all put that bubble there and, and I want to let you know Hey, there's one important thing, two important things, three, four, you know, I've seen screenshots of people with unread email little bubble with like a thousand or more there, right? They're like, ah! Very overwhelming demands on our attention and urgency with that red bubble. Well, as we begin our new series in the Gospel of Mark, I expect us to, Lord willing, cut through some of the noise that makes up our culture and cut through the news and the urgency and all of that to find what's really important, what really matters, and more than that, even what is truly good news, even amazing news for us. Just as a big picture, Lord willing, we're going to spend the next several weeks through about the end of October, just in Mark chapter 1, walking a few verses at a time. And then in the beginning of November, Lord willing, we'll begin a new mini-series that will take us up to Advent, up to December, uh, probably in the book of Exodus at that point. So we're only going to be in Mark for a couple of months. Lord willing. And one thing to know about Mark is that right from the start, he jumps in to the topic to tell us what's most important. And he sets the theme for the whole book, and it's not a very long book. You could read it in maybe a half hour to an hour in one sitting, and I encourage you to try to do that. And Mark pulls us in, and he doesn't want to let us go as he continues to tell this story, moving from scene to scene, clearly demonstrating that the story he is telling, he finds compelling. That he doesn't want to let us go. He wants us to experience what really matters. And I think we'll see that and a frame for the whole book as we dive into just Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll read through verse 8 of Mark 1 for context, but we're going to focus on verse 1. So read with me, if you would, please. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. This is God's Word. Good news. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the ways of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And all the country of Judah was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Lord, please bless your word to our ears, to our hearts, to our lives, to this world around us. Meet us here, we pray, by your spirit working in and through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I felt the tension as I was reading just now in Mark 1, 1 through 8, uh, of what I experienced just even this week in the last few days of going, well, should I just read verse 1? Well, no, because 2 and 3 really kind of go with verse 1. And, and really, you know, verse 4 follows right on 2 and 3. And, and really, 4 through 6 are all together. So I can just read verse 4. And then really, 7 follows right from 6. And, and 8 is there. But then 9 really goes with 8. And I just had this debate, and Dave, Pastor Dave's laughing because he knows the feeling, I'm sure, of where do you break the story up? And, and that is actually the way Mark has written this gospel, that he just pulls you in and everything follows. It's so tightly connected. In fact, I didn't verify this completely, but my sense is that his favorite word is immediately. It appears 42 times in Mark's 16 chapters. And you could just see it here in, in chapter 1 without turning a page. It's verse 1, chapter 12, immediately the Spirit. Then verse 18, immediately they left. Verse 20, immediately he called them. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum and immediately. Then verse 23, just then there was a trail in the synagogue of the spirits and cried out saying, oh wait, that's the wrong one, 23, 28. Immediately, the news about him spread. Verse 29, and immediately, so it's two verses right back to back several times. Verse 29, immediately. Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was there. And immediately, they spoke to Jesus about her. You just, immediately, immediately, just the story keeps going. Mark finds it compelling, and, and if you read it with an open mind, you can't help getting kind of sucked into the story and not being able to put it down. Mark, in some ways, kind of feels like that friend, you know, who wants to tell you something. And, and they begin telling you the story that's really important to them, and they just don't breathe. You know, they just keep talking. You're like, i got to go. And they're just telling the story, and, you know. But it's not, it's not slow. It's not drawn out. He just keeps going and going. And you're like, and Mark just keeps going. Without, though, any frustration, as you read this story, in fact, what you find is that it's, it's profound, and what he's talking about really matters, and it's really good news. And that's what the gospel is. In fact, that's what the word gospel means, good news, a good message. So as we approach this book that wants to just race forward, 
we're going to try to slow down a little bit. That's why I'm just going to spend a couple of months, Lord willing, in chapter 1. It's a very dense chapter, and that's where we're going to sit. And there's uh, Mark just, it's like staccato notes, you know, boom, boom, boom. And for us to really digest it, for us to appreciate the good news, especially from Mark, just takes a little bit of slowing down, of unpacking what's there, of, of chewing on it. And in fact, just even the first verse has so much there that, that one message won't exhaust it by any means. And what Mark reveals is, is, the, is the theme of the book and sets the tone. And it's that God has been working. He hasn't stopped and he won't stop. And that work centers on Jesus and you. Jesus and the original hearers, Jesus and the people he ministered to in those days. But more than that even, Jesus is the center of what God has been doing for all of time. And even before creation. And that's what we'll see today as we kind of unpack this. Uh, Mark right away lets you and I, the reader, the hearer of the story, in on what people in the story try to figure out along the way. Of who is Jesus? And what's he doing? And Mark says right away who he is and, and what he's about. And it centers on the fact that God has a plan. God has made promises and he keeps them. And those promises, in fact, are centered and fulfilled on Jesus. And so the first thing we want to look at is, is that, that God's plan is about what was promised before Jesus. The good news of God's plan is about God's promise before Jesus. Verse 1, the good news is about what God has been doing. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, if you've read the Bible a fair amount, chances are you're going to gloss over those words and not really think about the fact that you can't understand half the words in this verse unless you understand the context. And unless you've read a lot more, these words would be mere gibberish. Uh, you might think you even understand them, but until you really get the background, until you see that it's all a part of what God has been doing, that it's very much linked with the past, that the story about Jesus and the good news is centered on him, but in fact is about some promises well before him. And there are, there are implications for that, some encouragement for us when we really understand what that means. And Mark skips the, the angel visions of, of Luke and, and Matthew. He skips the, the nativity story, as we call it, the, the birth of Jesus and the birth of John, the wise men and all of that. Mark just jumps right in to the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But notice what he does right away in verse 2 is he goes back to the promises of God in the prophets as it is written, verse 2 says, in Isaiah the prophet. In other words, the good news of God's plan is about God's promises before Jesus in the prophets. God's plan and promise were revealed to the prophet Isaiah 
700 or more years before Mark wrote this gospel, before Jesus ministered on the earth, God promised through the prophets, in particular Isaiah, the prophet. And it's a little odd here that the way Mark writes it for us in our day, that he says it's written in Isaiah the prophet, verse 2, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That's actually quoting Malachi, verse 1 of chapter 3. And it is in verse 3 that Mark quotes Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. A verse that we often read at Christmas time around Advent. So Isaiah 40 verse 3 is Mark 1 verse 3, and I, Mark 1 verse 2 is actually Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. And that seems a little odd to our ears, and I think the sense of it is that, that Mark is, is, is getting into the story of the gospel and essentially thinking most of Isaiah, because if you read through Isaiah, and you never have before, and you read through it slowly at the same time maybe you're reading the Gospels, you would be amazed at how often they relate. And Isaiah is a massive book, huge book, especially compared to Mark. It would have taken multiple scrolls in those days. And so Mark is talking about, in his mind, he's thinking mostly about Isaiah, and he references Malachi to say, look, the promises of God have been in place and were spoken of hundreds of years before Jesus came on this earth. Malachi is actually the last prophet before there were some 400 years of silence that then Jesus shows up into. So Mark is bringing in those factors of, of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and he's bringing in those minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Malachi, to say that the promises of God, the plan of God has been in place for hundreds of years. Paul makes the same observation in Romans chapter 1. He identifies himself in the letter to the Romans as Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be a, a, an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the good news of God, Romans 1-2, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That this idea that the good news predates the coming of Christ is, is important. So important Paul highlights it. So important Mark highlights it at the beginning of his gospel. So important that numerous prophets mention the promises of God. But it's not just the promises to the prophets. God also spoke of his plans and promises to the patriarchs. Thinking of Abraham in particular, Paul says in Galatians 3.8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. The plan of God has been in place for thousands of years then before Jesus. Abraham most likely lived before 2000 B.C. 
And Paul says, God promised, preached the gospel good news to Abraham before Moses, before the prophets. God preached the good news to Abraham. And in particular, notice what he said in Galatians 3.8, that God would justify, that God would make right the Gentiles, the non-Jews, by faith. And God made that promise to Abraham, saying that all the nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. You know, is as we understand this story and the connection to the past, and don't just zoom in only on the red letters of Jesus and only on the New Testament even, but we understand the whole message of the Bible to recognize that God has always had this plan for all of humanity. That it is not just one particular group of people or one particular region of the planet, but that God has a plan that spans all of humanity, all of time and history, all of the universe. That this is what God is working on and has been. In fact, not, not just back to the prophets and the patriarchs, but all the way back to the beginning, the very beginning of history. God shared His promise with Adam and Eve in what theologians call the, the proto-evangelium which is a fancy way of saying the first good news. Because when you're a theologian, you gotta come up with different ways of saying things. Usually it's an umbrella term that packs a lot of meaning into it. And sometimes it's just like, hey, let's make it Latin or something, you know? So to simplify it is basically the first good news. And, and what theologians talk about and what it, we mean by that is Genesis 3.15. When God deals with the aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion, listening to the serpent and his lies, God begins to curse with, serp with a serpent. Then to Adam and Eve. And he says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity or hostility between you, serpent, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your seed, those who follow the evil one, and between her seed, those who follow the Lord. And he... That seed, that one seed shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That there will come a seed from the woman, a descendant of the woman who will, as uh, one of our former members, Timothy Brindle, wraps it, you know, uh, he will crush the skull of the evil one. He's the skull crusher. And yet at the same time, Satan will wound, but not permanently, mortally, the one who would crush the evil one. Then this speaking of the good news centered in Jesus. But in fact, it's not, it's not just the prophets. It's, it's not just the patriarchs. It's not just the, the proto-evangelium, the beginning there. It, it goes, the good news goes back before history itself. This is how big and how intentional God's plan has been. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4 put it this way. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, Ephesians 1, 4, just as He, God, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In other words, before God had even 
created the universe, or Adam and Eve, or anything else, God knew what was going to happen. And while not being the author of sin and not responsible for the sin and rebellion of Adam and Eve, he knew it would happen and he accounted for it and planned for it. In fact, did so with great cost to himself. As we see in the story of Jesus. Now the good news is about this plan of God that centers in Jesus but has been in place for eternity past, you know, and has been carefully and meticulously worked out moment by moment, day by day, hour, hour by hour, week by week, year by year, century by century, millennia after millennia, and it hasn't stopped. That this is who God is. And part of what makes the good news so compelling for Mark, and part of, I think, what he's trying to communicate to us, is, is this big, big picture to say that God has a plan. You know, as we look around at the world around us, we see chaos, we see disease, we see death, we see destruction, uh, we see all kinds of things like that. And it's, it's very easy if we only look around at what's happening around us, or even just look at our own lives and the tensions and stresses, the disappointments and, and discouragements that happen to us. It's very easy to be down and be, forget that God is doing something way, way, way bigger than me and you and us, and even in this moment in time. But the more amazing thing than that is that in all of that, that he's actually doing in those things with you in mind as well. That this is how big our God is. That he is working a plan that includes you, that includes your circumstances, your challenges, your particular passions, and your particular brokennesses, the ways that, that you have sinned and been sinned against, the ways that you are gifted and are blessed by others, that God is working a plan like that. You have this God at work for you, and he's faithful over all of eternity to keep his promises. And so one of the things that we need to do is, is to look at that big picture Right? To not zoom too closely in on any particular thing without considering the whole big picture. Right? And we do that in a number of ways. And, and, and one of the ways we do that here at Crossroads is by making sure that we go through Old Testament texts like we did this summer of, of looking at the Psalms as we'll do, Lord willing, in November of, of looking at a section of Exodus. The way we do at Christmas time around Advent of remembering the promises that lead up to the birth of Jesus, that it didn't just happen out of nowhere, but that it is this faithful God working in a broken world, despite the brokenness of the world, to accomplish what we can, and to do benefit us, and to benefit the world through us. That all of history, in other words, is about God's plan for humanity. And that didn't start with Jesus, but it does center on Him, and that's where we want to turn next. The good news is about what God started, about his promises in the past to the prophets, the patriarchs, the proto-evangelium, and the, hist the prehistory, but also it's about God's fulfillment. 
through Jesus, that Jesus was sent on a mission. We see that in verse 1 again, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. That the good news is of the good news of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and there's a couple ways you could take that, but I think the preferred way is to say it's the good news concerning Jesus, that he is, is the object of the good news, that, 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 that he is the good news what he has done and who he is. And in particular, Mark highlights it's, it's the good news of Jesus Christ who has been sent on this mission. And just even that, that description is probably very familiar to everyone. Even if we've only heard Jesus Christ as kind of a swear word exclamation, right? We have heard Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. You know, if you, Jesus had a driver's license, it wouldn't say, Christ, comma, Jesus, date of birth, zero, 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 you know, 122500. It's not really when he was born anyway, but different story. Uh, but Christ is, is a title. Christ is, is a transliteration of a Greek word, Christos, which means anointed, as in putting something on your head. And, and it's linked to the Old Testament practice of anointing prophets for their calling as prophets, for anointing kings in their calling as kings, for anointing priests in their calling to be priests. And, and in particular, Jesus has that anointing that he is the Christ, the prophet, priest, and king, the one who is set apart, which is the symbol of, symbolism of, of, of anointing. It's to say, not that now you have an oily head, but to say you're set apart. That God has come from on high. And there's a connection with baptism, especially as we practice it in, in pouring, uh, anointing on the head, to say that it is the Spirit, that God has come and entered this person for this particular work. And we lay hands on people very often for that same reason, to say God has set you apart. We see that. And Jesus is, is the ultimate one who has been set apart. He is the Christ. He's the, the Christos, the anointed one. And the Hebrew word for that is Mashiach, which we transliterate into English as Messiah. Christ and Messiah are the same word, essentially. Different languages as their roots. He's the Messiah. He's Jesus Messiah, the anointed one, the, the prophesied one, the promised one, the chosen one, the one who would come and fulfill the role of prophet, priest, and king. And Mark starts with that profound truth so that we, as we read through his gospel, are aware of it. And what we do, <clears throat> as you read through Mark's gospel, you, you can't help if you get sucked into the story of remembering where Mark starts in verse 1 and then seeing people bounce off of that truth. And it becomes really the demons who understand who Jesus is and it becomes his enemies who understand who he is. And it is the disciples and his followers who struggle the most to embrace who Jesus is and what he's come to do. That he is the one set apart. He's sent on a mission. He is Jesus Messiah. And, you know, and there's a lot of ways to help 
remember things that we gloss over. So you, you might, when you see Jesus Christ, you might say, well, Jesus Messiah, to bring it back to mind. You might say Christ Jesus, because just reordering things sometimes helps us. You might say Messiah Jesus. To remember there's more going on. There are these promises. There's the faithfulness of a God who spans eternity and is working all things together for good that's at work in the coming of Jesus. One commentator put it this way, the heart of the gospel, the good news, is Jesus Messiah, Son of God. And really, to understand that good news, you have to recognize Jesus being sent on this mission. And you have to recognize that not only is he sent on a mission, but he is sent on that mission to save a people. He is the Son of God. Mark says that in verse 1. A voice from heaven says it in verse 11 of chapter 1. As Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized, verse 11 of chapter 1 in Mark says, we read, A voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. The voice comes again in the Mount of Transfiguration, as we call it in Mark chapter 9, verse 7. A cloud overshadowed them as Jesus is up there with his closest disciples, just a few of them. And this cloud overshadows Jesus and the disciples. And a voice comes from the cloud and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And even after that experience, as they come down from the mountain, those disciples are just confused by that, not understanding what Jesus, who Jesus is and, and, and what he's come to do. And it's not ultimately until the very end of Mark's gospel where we see what seems to be, if not a sincere profession of faith, an exclamation of the truth in Mark 15, verse 37 and following. A, a Gentile soldier stationed at the cross guarding those who were being crucified along with guarding Jesus as he was crucified. We read in Mark 13, 15, verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mark 15, verse 38, or verse 39. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him, in front of Jesus, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. That there was something profound in the way Jesus died and in the events happening around them that this Gentile soldier gets it in a way that the Disciples and the followers of Jesus don't. That he understands that Jesus is not just one who was sent by God on a mission, but he actually is God himself. Mysteriously united God and humanity, the God-man, come among us to die for that very reason. If you're still in Mark 15, just flip back to Mark 14. Verse 61. Jesus is brought before the council 
the leaders of the people. Mark 14, verse 61. But he, Jesus, kept silent and did not answer. And again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the chosen one? Are you the anointed one? The son of the blessed one. And there was a superstition and a, and, a, and a reverence for the name of God that they would avoid saying God or more specific names for God. And they would speak in uh, euphemisms like the blessed one or speak of heaven instead of God. And so what he's saying here, the high priest in Mark chapter 14 Verse 61, he says, Are you, Jesus, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Are you the chosen one come from God? And verse 62, Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Verse 63, tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him, Jesus, to be deserving of death. Jesus literally died because of who he is the Son of God, and because he was honest about that, and because God was faithful to his promises. Do you see the irony in that? God has been promising forever that he would take care of our deepest, biggest problems, our debt and our sin, our brokenness and our relationship with him, our, our lack of meaning and purpose. He has promised literally forever that he would take care of that. And he has demonstrated over millennia that he's faithful in moving that plan forward. And when he came, the most educated, the most biblically literate people on the planet in history up to that point, perhaps, said, well, they can't possibly be. I don't believe you, and we're going to kill you. Do you see how oh God, in this wonder of wonders, uses that horrendous evil, the most evil act in the history of anything, to bring about his plan? to bring about his promises and fulfill them in Jesus that is in fact the way that he obtained for us what we most need, the way that he saves us from eternity in hell, the way that he sets us free from our own enslavement to sin, the way that he will fix and restore everything and yet still be just. He will bring together his mercy and his justice because he comes and fulfills them both, taking our penalty, our guilt, our shame, breaking the power of sin over us by becoming one with us, suffering for us, keeping his promises to the very end, even when they are so very costly. You know, it, that ought to lead us to a greater faith in him, 
it ought to lead to some encouragement and confidence that no matter what happens, right, even death itself is relativized by the fact that God came down to live perfectly and to die substitution for us because he rose victorious. And that's our path as well, that we will rise victorious if our faith is in Jesus, if we will put our confidence in Jesus, if we will say, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you have done what you always planned to do. And the thing that happens as we embrace that truth is not only that we grow in this confidence in all circumstances, but, but we find that the temptations of this world lose some power. That if I have a God who's willing to do that for me, what appeal really does fill in the blank? You know, uh, uh, working myself to the bone to get a little higher position or, a, or, or, or to reach that status or to have more followers on social media or, or to have my team win in the election. I'm not saying those things don't have some place in our lives, but brothers and sisters, if God is who he says he is and he has done what he promised to do for all eternity, all of those things can be relativized. They can be much less important in our eyes and in our hearts. And what we can give ourselves to is, is working in that arena for his glory. That, that we can deal with the challenges sacrificially, that, that we, can, we can listen, that we can share this good news. And I'd encourage you to, to take some time to just consider these promises and their implications, that, that God would be working for you in this way. And, and then what's He calling you to do? Because if you're in Jesus, there's a sense where you, you are anointed as well that you are set apart and that you have a calling. And it's going to be rooted in the gifts and the passions and, and the experience that he's, that he's given you. And there might be seasons of your life where you can't serve in those ways where you historically have. So what, what is the Lord calling you to do? How is he going to send you forward? How is he using you? And, and he's using so many of you. I, I mean, just this week, crazy, crazy week. But so many, so many wonderful things God is doing in the midst of the busyness of, of seeing little ones in pre-K come into our building from the nations to be not only prepared for kindergarten, but to hear the good news. To see the plans that are coming about for our kids' fair coming up at the end of October, where we can share not just candy in a safe place, but the good news. To see the plans and preparations coming about that we could restart Sunday school for our little ones, where they can hear the good news. For our, our youth as well for our adults and to see you all coming a little later and dealing with that change 
so that we might see more children come in the morning. And for you parents making the extra effort to get the kids here, that they might hear the good news. That these are all beautiful aspects of that big story that God's not done telling. This big story that started prehistory, promised Adam and Eve to the patriarchs, to the prophets, centered in Jesus Christ who came in fulfillment of all these things, literally to die for who He is. And because that's what He came to do. And rise victorious to send forth His Spirit to anoint you with His Spirit. And all He asks is that you not disbelieve and not neglect His faithfulness, but embrace it and rest in it and then follow where He leads. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, this is such good news. And we pray, oh Lord, for a greater depth of understanding of it. I thank you that, that we're working through that with the youth on Sunday morning, studying your word in Ephesians, able to dig into it and understanding the Bible on Sunday nights. And thank you for all of the kids brought out by their parents today, for our Sunday school teachers in the classrooms this morning. I pray, Lord, you would raise up some more. Lord, I pray for, for ESL helpers and teachers because we have such an opportunity to, to share the good news there. More and more people keep coming. And it's not a demanding task, oh Lord. It requires us to speak English and to smile and love people. Oh Lord, help us to resource that ministry more. Lord, help us to demonstrate the good news of of welcoming our homeschool group in, into our building and supporting families in training up their children in the various subjects of homeschooling. Oh Lord, bless and provide in all of these things that we might live out of the joy of this good news because of who you are and what you have done. Lord, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.